This is Food First Michigan on 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food secure state. And by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone and thanks for listening. The first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. That can happen only when the leader is willing to hear and face the truth. So states my mentor, John Maxwell. Truth is necessary, often hard to hear, and yet we are promised it is the only thing that can truly set us free. Truth is benign. It isn't partial. It doesn't play favorites. It is candid, straightforward, and unfortunately, sometimes elusive. Truth is to be pursued, cherished, and held up as a validation of our essence. Lovers of truth not only speak it, but they hear it too. This is how we know the purity of a person. Many can speak truth, but far fewer can hear it. James Garfield said from the Oval Office, the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. Today on Food First Michigan, we will speak truth. Truth that defines the current reality of our food bank network and the people we serve and the help we need now and for the foreseeable future. Truth about the state of food, the need in the community, who is helping us, who isn't, and how we are addressing these circumstances. That's all today on Food First Michigan. back, everyone. Thanks for listening. Jerry Rassan, the CEO and president at the Gleaners Community Food Bank, and also the president of the Food Bank Council Board of Directors and esteemed co-host. Yeah, Welcome. well, it's great to be in the studio. I mean, I will say I am still so happy to be together, you know, and and even though, you know, we've, we've been together now for, for quite some time since we couldn't. I still have a tremendously positive feeling just to be here in person looking at your smiling face, Doctor. So great to be here, and, and thanks for all you do. Well, let's, stay, let's dive into this, Jerry. We, thank you. We have, a, a, we have a, a, a few weeks ago, we did a show, and it, 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 we've done this show a couple of times, and when it was called A Perfect Storm, because um, we're kind of back to that scenario, but I think it's more acute than it has been in some time. We have greater need in the community, and we have less food than we've had since I've been associated with this work. Yeah, and when and when we talk about uh, less food, um, you know, the, understanding where that food comes from and, and how that process happens is, is pretty important because um, it is really about systems and how systems work and how systems don't work. And the reason we have a perfect storm is because the systems we have now to really meet the need of food insecure community members aren't connected to their need. They're connected to other things besides need. And so, you know, I, I, I will tell you, I just met with the executive committee of my board at, at Gleaners Community Food Bank and, uh, and, and essentially said, okay, we, we have to make some really tough decisions going into next year because the drop-off in food 
is is almost at a 10-year low in terms of donated food. Now, the the produce from the growers is about the same, right? That mm-hmm. we're doing pretty good on. But the manufacturing part of the food supply chain continues to tighten as people as people uh, learn how not to you know, learn how to sell everything they produce, right? Right. And so that's not bad. That's not bad, but it affects food banks. So so then you have the USDA programs, and they've got a couple pretty significant programs, and they were very very important during the pandemic, and have always had some level of importance. But just to put in perspective the decrease in that program. We were getting between three and four million pounds of food a month, just gleaners. Just gleaners. Right? Just gleaners during the pandemic. That is now down to less than 300,000 pounds of food a month. Now you say, wow, 300,000 pounds of food, that's a lot of food. Yeah, it is. But there's between 750 and 850,000 food insecure people in the five counties we serve. Mm-hmm. 750. To 850,000. And we don't have an exact count. We, that's a lagging indicator for us. It means we can look backwards and see it clearly. It's hard to know exactly what the need is today because the databases with that information only get updated so often. But we know it's between 750 and 850,000. And 300,000 pounds of food a month won't give half a meal to that group of people a month. Now, I don't know how often you need to eat. I need to eat more than a half a meal a month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're right. I so, think most of us do. So we start the conversation not from what does gleaners need, but what is the state in the community? What what's happening in our world? What are we seeing with with the household buying power reduced significantly because of inflation? With huge parts of the economy still not where they were before in terms of employment and people who are low income always are the ones that take the longest to make significant adjustments to employment changes, right? There are still a lot of people making those adjustments. Maybe they were working in a restaurant before and those restaurants are still closed. Now, there are help wanted signs and people are out there getting jobs. So I don't want to say it's there's only one point of view about this, but I do want to say that there are significant numbers of people because of child care and other issues that cannot re-engage in employment the way they did prior to the pandemic. So you've got inflation. You still have adjustments happening in the economy and in people's daily life and a higher need for food than we had prior to the pandemic and yet the the support for this is down to the lowest part since just after the great recession in 2008-2009 so i think i can put this in a little bit of perspective statewide you did i i think you could take what jerry just said folks uh, uh, from southeast michigan and and that would pretty much be the story across probably all of America's 200-plus food banks. Absolutely right. It's not just us. That's right. So so in the height of the pandemic, this is an average now, USDA commodities, those food programs that come from the United States Department of Agriculture flow to the state of Michigan, and then are uh, we are one of the distribution partners to get this food out into the community. During the pandemic... On average, I think for gleaners it was a little more, but on average across the state, this food accounted for 30% 
of the food that we were distributing. And by the way, we were distributing at an all-time high during right. the height of the right. pandemic. That's right. I mean, we grew our distribution by 47% and built the infrastructure. This is kind of like building an airplane while you're in the air. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so, but now today, where are we at from that 30%? We're somewhere hovering around 8%. Right. That's a lot of food. I mean, just just think. This is really difficult to to imagine. But at the height, we were distributing statewide 240 million pounds of food in a 12 month period. The most we'd ever done before, Jerry, at, at statewide was 165 million. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the average? What's the top truck? Uh, how much weight can a semi take? You know, figure 50,000 pounds, just so, for the sake of argument. So do the math, folks. 50,000 pounds in one semi, and we were doing 240 million pounds of food. And that 30% of that came from the USDA. The demand is still high in the community, and we're down to 8% of the food that we have in our warehouse Coming from the USDA. <laughs> well, as 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 I, you know, the the whole point of this was to say that the the food safety net, huge parts of the food safety net, aren't logically connected to need. They're connected to other things. So the the way I said it to my board was, you know, the logical way to solve a problem is to define the problem, weigh the solutions, and then pick the best solutions. Right. That's the logical way to solve a problem. Well, in 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 you know the 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 government circles so many times, and I don't want to you know I love my government people, but I just want to say what actually happens is rather than define the problem, we argue about the problem. Rather than weigh solutions, we look at what's popular, and rather than picking the best solutions, we do whatever we can. And as a result, we have these situations where you have tremendous community need, but the support for those people who 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 are really in need just isn't there because the process for giving them support doesn't make sense right so now we got to make sense of it our job is to make sense of it and any of our listeners know we are about making systems better we're not about complaining right what do you like to say we're not about fixing the blame we're about fixing the problem and yet when there's clearly a place where things aren't working right, we've got to call it out and say, this is not how this should work. Well, yeah, I think, let me give a little context to that Dr. Philipism there. You know, I want to fix the, I, I, I do want to fix the problem, not the blame. But it's a lot easier to fix the problem when people who are part of the problem own that. Right, right. But when they're denying that they're a part of the problem and the system's not working up to its highest level of effectiveness on behalf of the community. And let me be really clear here. This is not about more resources, food, and funds for the food bank network. This is tied to what you said at the beginning. What's the need in the community? And why do we do this anyway? And we have to remind people that we, we don't do this out of some sense of entitlement. We are all about how to make kids thrive, how to make sure they have the best opportunity to grow up healthy, to do well in school, to have great behaviors in school, to support systems that create the best opportunity for citizens. We do this work because it makes a difference, not just today, but in the long term. It helps families deal with their shortfalls every month. 
if they get food from us. Take everything you just said and apply it to senior citizens at the same time. And, 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 and we'll, we'll get into that in the next segment, but we've got to take a break now. So that went by really fast. Yeah. He's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. We're both back with you in just a moment. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here with you on Food First Michigan. And Jerry, um, perfect storm. We've been talking about that, but acute more today because of a lack of resources, lack of food, and higher need. That's fairly simplistic, but that is the case. Right. And, And some of it is true at face value and others uh, other another piece of that at face value just isn't true so we know that there's money to buy food that is not being spent and we know the reason that that money is not being spent is mostly administrative that well we we put bids out and we and we and we and and by we I'm talking about the federal government particularly the the USDA who's responsible for purchasing the food that then gets into the food bank system through the emergency food assistance program mm-hmm. and and so we know money was appropriated by congress and now it, the administration has to take that money and turn it into food for, for the emergency food network that's just the way it works the money's there but the food isn't why well you know well we're having trouble with the food supply chain and the bidding process and you know we can't figure out how to get the food at the right cost and and so you know well okay for for two months i can kind of accept that that's a problem right but not for six months or eight months or 10 months. At some point in time, you have to say there's got to be another better way to do this. So when you and, and we've seen this coming and we know and we learned during the pandemic, we can act on a dime. There are waivers that can be put into effect. There are things the administration can do without an act of Congress to move things along. And so there's this bottleneck that's super frustrating. Well, you're right. You're right, Jerry. I mean, it's a business model that's fairly antiquated. And there are waivers that have been have been, and I'm 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 just going to say this straight out to you. There are waivers that are available right now from the federal government about how some of these food programs can can work, but it's how the state chooses to apply those waivers that are hurting people. Yeah, I mean, I think there is so we have one particular example that we're that we're trying to figure out how to solve. So let me tell you the story. There's a there's a program called the Summer Food Service Program. We've talked about it several times on this show. And what the what it's intended to do for kids who get free and reduced lunch in school during the school year. Right. Mm -hmm. It gives them the same access to that food theoretically during the summer when school is out. Right. So that's the intention of the program. But when school is out, kids aren't there every day. And yet the way the program was written, kids have to go every single day to school to get their meals in order to receive them. Right. Well, so so because of the logistics of getting to school when school isn't in session, there have historically been pretty big problems for families to participate in that program during the summer. And schools have tried really hard to change that by adding programming and other things. But fundamentally, it's not very effective. 
to the degree where only one in eight of the eligible students for the program actually participate in the summer. So what is that, around 14, 15%? Yeah, 12, right? 12, mm-hmm. yeah. So so you, you've got a program that historically was operating where only one in eight of the kids that need food to thrive are actually getting that food. You're a really nice guy. So that's that. what that tells me is that we're this program at its best is failing at a plus 80% rate. Right. So so that's so now during the pandemic and and with the waivers from the from the USDA, which were extended, but we'll get to that in a minute, we were able to give groceries to families. Mm -hmm. And not only did that change the participation rate from one in eight to nine out of ten, but it was also half the price because. You don't have to prepare the meal. You give the families the groceries, and the families give their kids the food and prepare the meals for them. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that if you help families who are parents who are struggling with more month than money, and you give them the food, that they actually prepare the meals and, and, and feed their children? And one more thing. They eat the food. Whereas the food that they get in these prepared meal programs in school... The plate waste is upwards of 30%, and in some cases, upwards of 50%, right? So half of all the money that you spend is going to waste right from the beginning, right? So, so here you have a program that intention is great, but the execution doesn't create the results you want. We had a solution during the pandemic that we were allowed to do where we could give families groceries, and 9 out of 10 kids that were eligible got food, and it was half the cost— we can't do it anymore. Why? Because of how the state chooses to apply the waiver. And those are the things that we say, look, they're, with the resources that are already available, we could be addressing this food shortage right now, but we can't. And now, and, and you know, I don't want to oversimplify things. I do believe that there are good intentions from everyone involved in these systems. But we can't just be about good intentions. We have got to let the truth of the situation tell us what we need to do more and better, and we're not doing it. We're not taking what we learned from the pandemic and applying it to the future so that we can reach more kids and families with even fewer resources than what they're doing now. Well, here's a little truth for you. In a Crane's article came out July the 12th from Sherry Welch, the, um, the, the, the summer feeding service sites across the Michigan. Well, let's do, let's do your area first. Last year, Sherry Welch writes, quoting the Michigan Department of Education where this program resides, says there were 1,602 sites in Wayne, Oakland, Macomb, Livingston, and Washtenaw counties hosted summer meal sites. This summer, there's just 572. So we went from 1602 down to 572. And statewide, summer meal sites have dropped to 1,540 from a high last year of 4,280. So, Jerry, that's 2,740 sites that decided not to do this program anymore. And we'll probably get to that in a minute and one of the, some of the reasons why. But the point is... I didn't know anything about this until this article came out. 
Nobody called me and said, hey, can the Food Bank Council help? Can the food banks help with this problem? We've we've lost 2,740 feeding sites statewide, and no one said anything to me. No one, And I've talked to other organizations that are involved in this work, and no one said anything to them. So what's happening to these kids this summer right now? They are not getting access to food that is that is theirs. It, it's, it's, it's unacceptable. It is just absolutely unacceptable. And it's something that nobody wants, right? So so when we when we talk about what is the solution overall to creating a food secure community, one of the most important parts of the solution is that everyone invested in this has got to be working together. And we've got to really look at the cost benefit of each of the ways that this is getting done. There is a lot of help from the government, but that that's not something to take for granted and just go, okay, well, now what do we do? No, it still requires planning. It requires purpose. It requires clarity around goals. It requires managing. It requires leadership. And we've got to call for that leadership. We've got to call for that leadership because right now there are people suffering because we're lacking the leadership. Well, on that note, we're going to have to take a break. But we want to continue this conversation, truthful as it is. And um, again, truth will set you free, but first it's going to make you miserable. (laughs) 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 And I think we're in that stage right now. He's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. We're back continuing with the truth here on Food First Michigan. Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Welcome back, everyone. We're back. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight. We're talking about a lot of honest truth around here, Jerry. And, you know, I mean, again, the, the truth sets us free, but it kind of makes us miserable in the meantime. But that's the responsibility of leadership. And, you know, this is not about criticism. This is about we got to know what reality is before we can fix it. Right. And so we're talking about what that reality specifically looks like. We lost a lot of sponsors for uh, feeding sites for the summer. A lot of them. Huge number of them, right? And you mentioned it's thousands statewide. So, so okay. So then, well, what do you do? I mean, how, how do you not have that happen? And, and again, I, I firmly believe that the pandemic taught us how to do it. The pandemic taught us how to do it. We just have to remember there's a huge desire to go back to the way things were. There's a huge desire. And and part of the reason for that desire is it's more comfortable. We know that schools and and sponsors of these sites are struggling. We know they're struggling to get employment. We know they're struggling to get enough teachers and enough other administrative help. We know there's a lot of issues with spending and funding, and it's complicated, right? So I don't want to oversimplify the challenges community has and these sites had that to, to, to run again, right? But the fact is you can't go back. You cannot go back. You have got to move forward. Well, Jerry, if we go back, we're still only serving 12% of the kids that are eligible. Right. So you got to move forward. <laughs> Why do you want to go back to that? Yeah, well, <laughs> and again, it's because it's the way systems were set up, you know. It is. That's why people want to go back because it's what they're used to. It's it's what they know how to manage. And yeah. there's a lot of people involved. So. Yeah, yeah. You know, 
But I think it's too, we talked a lot about the, the, the school because this program resides in the Michigan Department of Education, but school sites are not the only feeding sites for for this program. That's true. Community centers and, and housing places. And, well, yeah. I, I know, you know, I live up around Flint and, and uh, the Food Bank of Eastern Michigan, I've, I've met them at a, they go to a a, a tree and a park. Yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> you know, right. and and they're ever, they're there every day at eleven. And some of the way this original legislation, one of the reasons we can't go back to Egypt here, we can't go back to what it was like, is because the original legislation called for congregate eating. They had to eat at the tree, right. raining or not. And if they had an apple and they wanted to to take the apple home for a snack later, that wasn't allowed. You had to throw the apple away. And if mom, who hasn't eaten, who walked their, her child over to get this food at 11 o'clock, if he or she wanted to give her, her, their mom the apple, they couldn't do that either. Right. Right. So, no, I'm not interested in going back. Yeah. And I think that's right. Right. And, and again, uh, the, the goal here, when you have a constricting of resources— you have got to take a hard look at everything you're doing and make the most with what you have. It is a really important thing. And that discipline is a good thing. We've got to have that discipline. Well, let's have it. Let's have the discipline of understanding what, with the resources that we have, how do you get more food to more people more often? That's our goal, right? And it's a so all that to say, and again, so that you know, we just don't have a sense of frustration by every listener now going, well, I'm as frustrated as you are. Now what? <laughs> right. We've done a good job ramping that up. And I would just say, I think that's a really good thought, though, right there. More food, more often to more people. But I think we've even evolved further, Jerry. I think it's getting the right food to the right people at the right time in the right place when they when and where they need it and that's been the evolution that we've learned coming out of the pandemic about the work the food banks do and we can we can do it better uh and 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 when you've got partners to work with you've got to use the skills of all the partners the best resources of all the partners to accomplish the goal you you can't just sit by yourself and make decisions and do the things you need to do. Uh, and so we, we need to work together, and we are, right? We are. We're, 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 we're doing what we can now to try to change this, to, to, get, to get clarity around what's actually happening in the community, to bring that voice to state government and to federal government and to agencies and others that we're working with, to try to address in our local community the, the challenges of working within the constraints of the, of the legislation as it's written so that we can get good policy work done and get some of the changes done that need to be done. But in the meantime, there are things we could do that we're not doing that we've got to move as well. That these that these waivers allow for, but are not being applied in that way here in the state at any, any longer. Jerry, what's one or two top reasons why people, organizations, are deciding not to be a summer feeding site? Did they did they stop caring about kids in their community? <laughs> no. I so so the first the first and most challenging part is that the cost of food has gone up and the the reimbursement rates of the program haven't haven't risen as much as the cost. So you have a a problem of people just can't afford to provide the food at the 
cost or at the price that they're being offered. So if it costs, let's just say, $4 a meal and you're only getting offered $2.80, well, you can't keep doing that, right? You, you have to have the cost actually cover the cost of the program. And in many instances, it just simply doesn't. Now, it did for a long time, but inflation has had a terrible uh, impact on the economics of these programs for the sponsors because any reimbursement that the sponsor doesn't get, they have to eat the cost. So if the sponsor has to bear 20 to 30 percent of the cost of the program because the the resources from the government only cover 70 to 80 percent of the cost, they just won't do it. They don't have the money. They can't do it. They can't right. do it. Right. I mean, you can't do it long anyway. Right. You know, uh, I mean, what do they say? Where there's no vision, the people perish. And where there's no money, the vision does. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. So, I mean, so let me see if I understand this right. If you can right now, the way the reimbursements rate are for this program, you're having to eat 20 to 30 percent of the cost. So you're paying 20 to 30 percent of the cost of the program for the privilege of doing this on, on behalf <laughs> of the government. Well, I would say this. We're, we're doing better than that, but, but it's a lot of work to do better than that. And there are very few vendors you can use, and, and there are there, we're managing a lot of different logistics and quality issues in order to get all the funding that we need to do the program. So, so let's just say um, the, the, the economics of the program changed dramatically because of inflation. And depending on the, the resources that an organization has to do the work, that can have an impact that's pretty significant, maybe up to 30 percent of the cost of the program. So the, the, I think that it's an economic decision, and then to go to tag back, we got to get out of this segment in a minute. But it, 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 there's also a frustration level, right? Right. So then there are there are the requirements, right? That you you have to monitor you have to monitor what's going on at, at each of the sites, and that means somebody has to be there every day. You've got to do a lot of paperwork to record what's actually being done. There was a lot of things done during the pandemic that waived some of that. Some of those waivers are still there. Others aren't. But for sponsors who, who have to take on the burden of administering the program, there was some administrative challenges in addition to economic challenges. But those are the, the main things that keep people from, from continuing to do it. Well, Jerry and I are going to come back in just a moment, and I'm going to try to my best to get Jerry to talk to us about the honest truth. Seems like a, that might be a little redundant, the honest truth. But, but It's not fake news. <laughs> no, it's not that. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight, we're back with the honest truth in just a moment. Thanks for listening, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight, last segment for this show, Jerry. It's a little different show for us. Um, you know, we're just having a conversation with Mark, our producer, that that because of these circumstances, are you no longer convinced that we can solve this problem? Oh, quite the opposite, right? We learned during the pandemic we can solve this problem, but it takes a certain kind of effort to do it. And now we've got to relearn what, what we've dropped all of a sudden that we learned during the pandemic, right? And so our, our goal is let's get back to understanding the cost and benefit of doing things a certain way, and let's make the highest and best use of all the resources that we have. That is part of the reason that the, that the uh, 
problem of food insecurity can be solved is because it's not bigger than we are. It's not smarter than we are. What am I missing, doctor? And, and it's not beyond us to solve. There we are. So I still believe that. But there are times we who, who is our boss, right? Who are we accountable to? At the end of the day, we're accountable to the community. And that's who we have to make sure we're elevating in everything that we do. We've got to elevate the community. We can't elevate institutions over the community. And and what we're trying to say today is time to be accountable to the community, right? The honest truth that 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 we've got to face is that the solutions to food insecurity are not right now tagged to the need. Yeah. They are tagged to other things. Rather than defining the problem, weighing solutions, and using the best solutions, we are arguing about the problem, figuring out what's popular, and doing what we can. We cannot do that. We've got to get back to the discipline of good decision-making throughout the partners that are working to reach the people in our community. Again, I say to my team all the time, our boss that we share is the community. That's who's got to come first. Right. And I, 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 I agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more. I really hate saying that because, but, you know. <laughs> You're going to give me a big head too late. Yeah, right, right. Too late. Yeah, it's almost like a good question <laughs> comment, you know. But the the honest truth, as you say, is that we are accountable. It's not, we cannot allow our loyalty to an institution. Me, I'm the executive director for the Food Bank Council. I have seven food banks, Feeding America Food Banks, that serve all of Michigan County. They are really my bosses. My board of directors, and along with my at-large members, they are my bosses. But really, it's the kids. It's That's the right. seniors. That's right. That's who I'm accountable to. And I cannot. I cannot. I, it's, an item, it's not in me to ignore when something is designed to meet this need, whether it's seniors or kids, and the programs are not being as effective as what they can be. I, I can't ignore that. Right. That's right. And so that's why we've got to be at the table together solving these problems. Yeah, it, I'm I'm probably a little more passionate about on the show today. I'm not mad though. I, I am passionate about this because I know when we're not at our highest and best, kids don't have access to food. Well, that's the consequence. I agree, and that's what drives us all to this. That's why we're still in it, and I'm sure that's why you, our listeners, are still listening to this show because it's what you want to, and we appreciate being in this with you. and And we just want to say we are in it with you, and we're grateful for your your continued uh, being with us on this journey. So, Jerry, let's unpack just for a minute more, if you could. You you say our food distributions have never been tagged to need. You, you say that, that, you know, all the programming, not just, not just food, what food banks do, but the, the, the other programs that are incorporated into the safety net, are they tied to need? Yeah, only if you think about the, the like, income limits as being tied to need. But, but income limits aren't the only thing that measures need, right? So, so when you think about if you were going to solve this problem logically, you'd define the problem first. Well, how many people are food insecure and who are they? And how do we get them the food that they need so they're not food insecure? And another way to say that is so they can thrive, right? Yes. So, so you'd start by defining the problem. Then you'd say, okay, well, this is who they are and this is where they are. Now, here's the possible ways to reach them. So we're going to change what we do based on what solutions work best. That's how you would do it. Mm -hmm. That's how you would tag programs to need. But that's not what actually happens, right? What actually happens is that the the resources that are available, whether it's free food or whether it's through government legislation, doesn't actually say this is how many people are food insecure and this is who they are and this is the best way to reach them. They say, well, these are the resources we have, so do what you can. Mm -hmm. 
right? Well, then there's huge mismatches. Sometimes, like during the pandemic, there were times when we had more food than there was a need for at that time. Now, we know how to manage that a little bit easier, right? It's always easier to manage more than less. But now we have the opposite, where we have significantly less food than what the community needs because that problem-solving methodology, that logical way of connecting the need to the resources to meet that need just doesn't exist. Well, I, I, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I saw a statistic just this week that said that 30% of the people who are food insecure are ineligible for SNAP, for food stamps. And so where are they going? Well, I think one of the places they're going is to us. That's why when these programs don't run at a high level of efficiency, whatever it is, it makes our lines longer, puts more burden on the charitable food network. And that's why we're doing the topic of this show today. And we all want to live in a community where children and seniors and the whole community thrives because that's just a better place to live overall. It speaks to our values. It speaks to our strength as a culture when we create systems where people can thrive. And, and, and we all want that. So let's get there. Well, how about a little food for thought? All truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed, as Sun will probably do regarding the content of this show. Second, it is opposed. And third, it is accepted as being self-evident. I do know, like Winston Churchill said, a lie will get halfway around the world before the truth gets its shoes on. But that's why we thought we'd give the truth a head start today by defining reality, what it is for us and the families we serve across Michigan. Some people are helping us, like you listeners, and some people are making our work a bit harder by not doing their work with excellence. Eventually, the truth, like the sun, cannot be hidden for long. And until then, we will strive to put and keep food first, folks. Food first. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.